Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Ranching Reboot. Thank you for joining us this week. This episode and all episodes so far have been sponsored by me. And now our generous patrons over on our Patreon page. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. Or you can check the show notes. Look for a link tree forward slash Red Hills Rancher link. Click that, then scroll down and you'll find the link to our Patreon page. Please go check that out. We could really use your support to keep all these great podcast episodes coming. After you check out Patreon, I need you to do something else. I need you to make sure you're subscribed to this podcast, and I need you to share an episode with one of your friends. It doesn't have to be this episode. It could be the one that you found the most insightful or thought-provoking. Just share it with your friends. It helps so much. Over the last few months, one of the most fan-requested topics is questions about my story. Well, I had the chance to make a good connection with the host of the Herd Quitter podcast, Jared Lumen, and we have made several hours of awesome content together over the last couple of weeks. And that's dropping today on the Herd Quitter podcast. So if you're hearing this, you can go check out my interview with Jared Lumen on the Herd Quitter podcast. And make sure you come back right here next week and Jared is in my hot seat. Our guest this week comes to us from Crawford, Colorado. He's a Marine Corps veteran. He's highly involved in the local community. He's got a very, very interesting origin story involving rabbits and chinchillas. Today we're going to talk about his direct-to-consumer grass-fed beef business his bees, and maybe we'll even talk a little bit about Bitcoin. So please welcome to the show from Crawford, Colorado, Jason Rick. So Jason Rick from Crawford, Colorado. How are you this morning? Oh man, the sun's shining, the birds are chirping. We got about an inch of snow over the last couple of days. So that's the first moisture we've had in weeks. So I'm doing pretty darn good. How are you doing? Dry. And like you, we just got a little bit of snow. We were supposed to get like four to six inches. It turned out to be maybe an inch, uh, which was a little disappointing, but I didn't mind not having to go out and bust drifts because the way the weather forecast was looking, if we would have got like four to six inches of snow, I would have had some pretty serious drifts to get through to get to my cows. But take what you can get. It's awful dry here. We're we're behind and Everybody's heard me complain about how freaking dry it is for the last couple of months. So we're not going to get, not going to get back into that today. Yeah. And that's, you know, we're in an unprecedented series of droughts in written history of this area that we're in, which is one of those things that really makes you think about what are we doing and why are we doing it? So we'll probably get more into that later on, but yeah, it's super dry has been for years here. We rely on snowpack for irrigation water, and um, it's always in the back of my mind. Well, you're on the water district or water board as well, aren't you? Yeah, I'm on our, our irrigation water board of directors for Fruitland Irrigation Water, and then I'm also on the board of directors for both of the domestic water companies that provide domestic water to these mesas that we live on. 
And um, so that's that's one of those things where uh, water is the lifeblood. I know out there you guys have, you know, shallow wells. We call it shallow wells because we have water 300 plus feet. Um, and it's very expensive to drill and pump and all of that. And um, for stock water where we, in the winter, we rely on domestic water to water our stock. And so if you don't have it and you don't have good delivery, uh, that really changes the dynamics of everything. And that could probably get kind of expensive, can it? Um, it yeah, yes and no. I mean, so most of our domestic water is metered through a dole. So you have a, a, a rubber orifice essentially that delivers a quart a minute and then it goes into a cistern. And um, so the more capacity you have of storage, the, the more safety you have essentially there. And so, yes, it, it is expensive, but um, compared to the people that haul water from town, uh, it's pretty cheap. I, every time I see somebody hauling water to cows, I just, all I see is dollar signs. Dad always told me that was a real easy way to go broke or to spend a lot of money in a big hurry was to haul water to your cows. I think I, in, in 14 years, I've been lucky enough. I've only had one water system failure that I had to haul water. And it was only, it was only about 4,000 gallons. And I just had to go dump that in a storage tank. So that wasn't that bad. I can't imagine, you know, hauling, you know, four or 5,000 gallons of water a day to cows that are standing in a pasture that doesn't have, have installed plumbing. That's just a completely foreign concept to me here. Well, and that's so, so everybody that leases land from someone else that the landowner is not willing to or interested in sharing cost for water infrastructure, that's generally where they get into that position of hauling water because hauling water is much cheaper than feed here in Western Colorado. And so that's where it's way cheaper to haul water to the cows than it is to try and put that feed up, especially like crop residue and haul it back to the cows. And so that's, those guys all pencil that out dollars and cents. You know, they don't have enough home place land mass. And with the cost of real estate doing what it is, um, the only way that you could start as a new farmer or rancher would be to inherit a place or win the lottery. Because I mean, there's properties out here selling for $16,000 an acre and it is marginal pasture land at best, but you have city folks that just wanna have a piece of dirt in the country, in the, in the beautiful mountains and all of that. And they've got the money to spend and so, that's that's just the reality of ranching where we are here in Western Colorado. And they think that $16,000 an acre is just an absolute screaming bargain price. And where I am, if you knock a zero off of that, that's still overpriced for for rangeland around here. Farm ground goes for, you know, goes for ridiculous amounts of money like it does everywhere, but range ground, um there were several ranches that were on the market for many many years that that all of a sudden <laughs> seemed like a year ago everything everything that had been on the market for five six years all of a sudden moved and traded hands and a lot of it traded hands for you know a thousand twelve fourteen hundred dollars an acre i mean we're talking about good big places you know five six thousand acres at least uh i know four of them that moved within just a couple of months beginning of last year 
and it, that's not getting any better for that's not better for anybody anywhere. I think everybody that's in the livestock industry or or trying to raise crops is facing the same kind of cost scenario that land prices are just spiraling upwards out of control. And like you said, it's, you know, COVID has even driven a lot of that. It's driven a lot of urban exodus of people mm-hmm. want to get out, get to smaller communities, you know, like Crawford. How many people live in Crawford? There's like 650 people in town. Like, so the community's probably double that? Yeah. Is so that probably your- a little bit more? Because, I mean, we have so many ranchettes, you know, 20, 40, 60, 80 acre little subdivided, you know, someone took 500 acres or a thousand acres and split it into little ranchettes. I mean, for instance, when I first started dating my wife, because we live on her family's place, there were four houses from town to their ranch. And I counted yesterday, there's 56 houses from town to there. So that's from 1995 to today. Um, that's, and those are just the ones you can see from that road. If you get out on the rest of the county roads, I mean, there's even new county roads just to facilitate subdivisions, you know, little 40s, little 20s here, there, and everywhere. They keep closing county roads here. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Well, there's, Population density here is dropping, unlike, you know, Colorado, where it seems to be rising. Our population density for the last 30, 40 years has done nothing but go down. So for uh, for a little bit of context on that, and I don't think I've shared this on the air, I actually live in the house that I was basically born in. I bought it, um, I bought it about 12 years ago from the gentleman that owned it, um, and I have to commute out to the ranch. And housing i forgot where i was going with that but housing is uh you know housing is very difficult to come by and the last podcast i did which should come out which should have come out last week unless i did something weird with the release schedule um lauren poncha was talking about his ranch out in california and he lives in town did not want to build a big house out on the ranch. He didn't want to put his value of on the ranch. He didn't want to increase the value of the ranch by building a nice million dollar home. And we're talking like California. He's uh, 40, 45 minutes north of San Francisco. So you can imagine like real estate prices. I don't think either you or I have a cause to complain <laughs> about real estate prices, um, you know, in that perspective. But he made a great point that the house is an asset, okay? And the ranch is an asset too, but building a million dollar house on that ranch to live in doesn't necessarily increase the value of that, that ranch. It doesn't increase the value. It doesn't increase the productivity of the ranch. And if you ever want to sell that house, it's tied to the ranch. I mean, the house is on the ranch. <laughs> so then what do you want to, then, then what are you going to do with it? So he, he had a he had a great argument for uh, you know having your house separate from the ranch, and I just I thought that was really interesting. But the so these ranchettes that are springing up, it's probably taking land that you can remember being in some sort of agri- agricultural production, whether it was with whether cattle or farmed, and now it's broken up into these small ranchettes. And let me guess, 
most of them have one or two horses and a couple of them have a cow or two? Yeah, and, and actually, I would say probably less than 10% have a horse or two. Most of them don't want to be tied down with livestock. And so it's like some of them are second and third homes. Some of them are retirees that just retired from the city and want to get out. And you see those ones turn over every one or two or three years. Every year you have a really good snowfall and a good watershed winter. They are completely at a loss on how to deal with the snow and because <laughs> we don't have professional snow removal and, you know, and, and they built these big fancy houses just barely on the edge of code for snow load. So then you have to have someone come shovel the roofs off and all of that stuff. And then you'll see them, they'll change hands. And then the, the realtor will find the next sucker, you know, and they'll, they'll buy it, you know, and, and deal with it again. Um, some of them, they come in and they put, you know, two and a half million dollar houses on them. And um, it's like a show, show piece for their, their friends and family that come from wherever to say, hey, we're living the Western lifestyle. We have this mission style, super fancy house, you know, and then you look at um, the personalities of those people oftentimes don't really jive with the local community. Um, just because, you know, you know, farmer, farmer Joe down the road has been on this property since 1896 and um, somebody comes in they don't have anything else to do. They get on all the board of directors for every single organization. They start, you know, pushing their weight around, you know, because they're used to getting their way because they have lots and lots and lots of money. And um, I've seen that happen a couple of times. I was actually recruited to be on quite a few of the boards that I'm on because I kind of walk that knife's edge between the good old boys and a little bit of a different thinker and a problem solver and um, to kind of mediate and also pull together those different kinds of uh, personalities and priorities. So that's fun and, and exhausting sometimes. But yeah, I mean, that's, and, and some of those 20s or 40s have a, a double wide trailer or a, you know modular pre-manufactured home. It was like their dream to get out of the city and they were able to buy those properties when they were still reasonably priced, which were still way cheaper than where they came from. And um, they're going to live there. They're going to die there. They're just happy to be there, you know, get out, out of the city to, to live their sunset years, you know. Um, and those are the great people to work with. Those are the great landowners because they don't really want to fix the fence. They don't want to see the grass go to waste. Um, they can see once we bring the cows in and through and out how much better the ground looks. Um, they love the feeling of supporting agriculture in their local communities. Um, and so that that's it's fun as well. It's just a lot of electric fence building. So it sounds like you might have had some success getting you know some of those little ranchettes uh, leased to graze, I guess, to put your cows on it. Yeah, and that's the thing with them is most of them are just really happy to continue to get the tax break of it being in ag ground. 
it's easy for them to prove that when I'm on it, you know, and, and the county assessor can call me and says, hey, these people say you have a lease with them. And so just the, the tax savings far outweighs what they would get in a, in a lease payment. So oftentimes it's just for free, keep, keep the cows out of the petunias, you know, and um, come in for however long you'll be here and uh, we'll call it even, so. That, that must be a very, very significant tax savings to work out like that. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's like 400%. So let's say your taxes are $670 for um, ag. I think it's 400% more than that if it's just residential land. Um, so... Yeah. Yeah. Just a few acres and a trailer house. Yeah. Come graze around that. So I don't have to pay $10,000 in taxes. I, I get it. That makes total sense. So let's, uh, let's, let's drag that rabbit back to the main trail here. I want to hear about Jason. Where did you come from? Where, where are you from? Okay. So I was born and raised in Hotchkiss, Colorado, which is a little town just down the road from Crawford. Um, I lived in the only subdivision in Hotchkiss. That's where I grew up. So I was one of the few kids that lived in town. And I always wanted to have livestock. And so I had rabbits. I raised all different kinds of varieties of rabbits. I showed in 4-H and in FFA. That was my livestock enterprise. I'd butcher rabbits in the backyard and deliver them to all the little old ladies around that still ate rabbits. Um, and so that was my... my uh, introduction to livestock agriculture. <clears throat> we also did fiber rabbits. We did show rabbits. We raised Dutch, which are a marked breed. Fiber French, rabbits? Yeah, French, yep. French and English Angoras. And so we, I would sell their wool to the spinners because it's super fine wool and you just comb, comb it out, you cart it out. Um, and then we have meat rabbits, Californians, New Zealands, um, sables. We had a little bit of everything. Going back to your, your wool rabbits, like, is that, I know, I know like rabbit uh, felt is a thing. Is that actually profitable? Like, can, can a person make a profitable enterprise with, with raising rabbits for their pelts and meat? Um, for sure, all of the above. I mean, <clears throat> the um, conversion ratio between feed and productivity, not to mention the gestation period of rabbits and the number of offspring per litter. Um, when we would go to compete in FFA for our ag business, um, I would blow the doors off of every single other enterprise, no matter what, maybe other than bake sales as far as return on investment, initial, um, initial investment, maintenance costs, feed, production. I mean, there, there is no other enterprise. Rat, um, chickens started to come up just because they were getting such a big premium for their um, chickens, butchered chickens. But then you have to have a brooder, whereas my does would take care of my babies, right? They have the incubator in their belly, then they have them, they take care of them, feed them. Um, 
yeah, there, there is no livestock enterprise that I've ever been involved in that was as profitable as rabbits. Okay, I, I get that. And it's it's been talked about that, like generally your poultry are, are very profitable because they're an efficient converter of pounds of feed to pounds of meat. Pigs are kind of like on the next rung and then sheep and goats are, are really good too. And then in kind of at the other end of the scale, we've got cows. And, you know, we all love our cows, but let's be honest, it takes a hell of a lot of feed to put a pound of weight on a cow and compared to put, you know, the same amount of mass on, on a rabbit or on a chicken. It just, it just, I'm just kind of fascinated. Like I've never heard of anybody raising rabbits to sell for their pelt, like meat rabbits. That's a thing. Heard of that. But, but the whole rabbits uh rabbits to get their fur that's a new one well and this was their wool this was their hair long angora hair right so it would go to people that would blend it in with other kinds of wool to make it softer um because it's super fine so it's not quite as strong you have to have larger sizes of fibers but they were doing it to do like um hand spun lace when they were crocheting and knitting hand spun lace and stuff, because it's just that fine and it's that soft. And you don't have to kill those Angora rabbits, you simply comb them out. So animal husbandry and cleanliness is has to be huge with them because you get any soiling in it, then it devalues the, the hair very, very greatly. Um, and so, and a lot of that just came down to pen design to make sure that their little rabbit pellets manure could go all the way through. Um, and then even their resting areas were small enough that they couldn't get comfortable on them and, and poop on them, that it would go past the side of that down um, through the bottom of the cage. Okay, how exactly valuable is Angora rabbit wool? I don't know what it is now, but it was by the ounce and it was hundreds of dollars per ounce. And so, and then you, you, the other thing too, is you can breed in different colors. And so if you have undyed natural grays and smokes and pinks and, you know, different colors, um, that's even more valuable champagnes and different different colors okay now before anybody gets excited about a thousand dollars an ounce for angora rabbit wool how much wool would you generally get off of one rabbit uh like two to three ounces per season because it's super light and super fine okay if you'll send me over your old pen design i'll go shop for rabbits this afternoon <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so that that but then that led me down a rabbit hole of chinchillas. Chinchillas were really big in the area. Um, they were exporting all of their pelts to um, Asia because that was where the market was. And that was so I started working at a chinchilla ranch in Crawford out here and was trading labor for breeding stock. And so we were raising and butchering and and processing hides and then also selling um, babies to the pet stores around for people that have to have pet chinchillas. And they're a completely different animal. They're, they're an amazing 
ancient kind of animal that has their own way of doing things and you either make them comfortable so they can do that or they just won't do it. And um, that was fun. That was interesting. And I ended up getting rid of all of those when I joined the Marine Corps, got rid of all the rabbits, got rid of all the chinchillas when I joined the Marine Corps. Um, Simplify and, it, and thank you, by the way. Yep. Thank you for your service as well. Um, so I did four years in the Marine Corps. I was stateside all the time because at, this, at the time I had a my now wife, um, then fiance, and so I didn't want to necessarily go overseas. So I went to a school in Pensacola, Florida. Um, beautiful Navy base there. Good place to be for spring break, Pensacola Beach. Um, wonderful. They let me visit once for three days. <laughs> And uh, then I did C school at Coronado um, in San Diego. Another and place that I was not suck. Another place that's beautiful weather. <clears throat> like I like to sit on the beach and watch the uh, buds training for the Navy SEALs. <clears throat> Any desire to go join them? Fun to watch. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, and then I, I figured I was a shoe in for um, being stationed in Miramar because I was a ground support equipment electrician. And then I got my... That's for aircraft, right? Correct. Okay. <clears throat> I uh, got my orders and, and I didn't understand the destination code. So I got on the computer and looked it up and it was uh, Marine Corps Base 29 Palms out to the expeditionary airfield out in the middle of the Mojave Desert. So we spent three years, my, we I came home, <clears throat> we got married, <clears throat> excuse me, went out there and spent three years in 29 Palms. That's where my daughter was born there at the hospital on 29 Palms. And um, thank goodness the Navy doctors are really good at birthing babies because when you're in the military and you're poor, there's two things that you do. And uh, one of them results in babies. <laughs> because my daughter ended up being uh, an emergency C-section. They actually had the medevac helicopter sitting there idling to fly her down to uh, Loma Linda NICU if she needed to go. Um, but everything worked out okay. And now she is a junior at Regis University in Denver in nursing school. My wife is a registered nurse. Um, she's an advanced practice oncology nurse. So that is one thing that's a huge contributing factor to our health and wellness journey and what we're doing with cattle. And then our son is 14. He's an eighth grader at, uh, Paonia middle school, and he'll be going to the North Fork combined high school next year as a freshman, which used to be Hotchkiss high school. And that's where my wife and I graduated together. But the numbers of kids has dropped off so much they combined Peonia High School and Hotchkiss High School together, and now it's called North Fork High School. So when I came back from the Marine Corps, I went to work in the coal mines. Um, that was the big industry, ag and coal mining here in the North Fork Valley. And I worked in the coal mines for 15 years. Um, about 12 years ago, I proposed leasing the, my in-laws ranch because it had been conventionally ranched. Um, 
by, you know, uh, it had been leased out. And like a lot of people's leased ground, you know, you take what you could take and then you don't leave anything behind. And, and it's just really where my passion was. I mean, when I started dating my wife, I was a full-time free ranch hand, right? <clears throat> and so I just really fell in love with this place. And I kind of saw the direction that it was going. I didn't like it. My, my mother-in-law and father-in-law discouraged me greatly from that because they were city folks. They bought land out here in the early 80s and farmed for 10 or 12 years, ranched, cattle ranched, conventional cow-calf. And it about broke them um, just because, as you well know, input costs don't ever go down. And the sale barn decides if you live to fight another day or not um, when you're in that conventional system. And I said, I don't care. I have a good paying job. And so I signed a cash lease with them and I started leasing the, the, the place. And um, it was really easy for a few years because we'd had good irrigation water. The weather was really good. What I was doing was just trying to restore the land. What, I would what time frame was this? This would have been, um, I think 2008, 2007, 2008 is when I took it over. Okay. Yeah. And um, I was just trying to heal the land. I was getting all the irrigation infrastructure repaired and put back in shape. And, um, and then if I had a good stand of grass, I would hay it and sell it. Um, just one cutting with the idea that so much of that gra grass and alfalfa needs to be stimulated either by animal impact or by clipping it, you know, and leaving lots of stubble so there's plenty of solar panels. And um, through watching that, number one, I saw the forage analysis on the hay getting better. I saw the stands getting thicker. And then um, I also started studying the different colors of flowers on the alfalfa. It was like nothing I'd ever seen, nothing I'd ever seen in a book. Um, and so I decided to do a little experiment and I let some of that hay go to completely to seed, super over mature. And then I hate it. And um, I went and rolled that hay out late fall, early winter on some bare ground um, and pretty much let the deer and elk eat it because um, I still didn't want to have any cows on because at that time I didn't own any cows. And so that next spring I had baby alfalfa growing in that bare dirt from that hay that I'd rolled out. And so I called one of our agronomists and called a couple of seed companies to see, like, what do you think this is? And they all said, it won't survive. Um, alfalfa, you know, is autotoxic. It won't let, if there's anything even close to it in the umbrella of mature alfalfa, that won't grow just because the way that it works and the, and the way that the interaction between the alleles and the soil and all of that. And, um, and it did, and it took root. And now I have strips of alfalfa growing where I rolled those bales out. Um, I hope I can replicate that on my place. That's, I've been trying to roll some alfalfa out and get across some bare areas this winter. And because I'm using alfalfa as my uh, supplemental protein for the winter, 
managed to keep plenty of stockpiled grass, standing stockpile. So I've got plenty of brown stuff for him to eat, but I just need to haul out a little extra protein. And I've been trying to be strategic about where I'm putting it, you know, try to put it on some bare areas, some areas that have been abused, you know, just, I, and hopefully I see that, you know, over the next couple of years, I'll see some of that wild alfalfa come up, but this stuff wasn't uh, like, it wasn't cut late. It's not super seedy either. Well, that's the other thing too, is everything after about 1970, um, his, that's been bred out of it. And so what I found later talking to a couple of the good old boys here, that the last time those fields that I harvested that hay off had been plowed was in the fifties. And that's when they put permanent pasture in following ear corn. And one of them showed me a picture of that field planted in ear corn back in the 40s. And um, so so in talking to the seed dealer, he says, it sounds like what you probably have is what we call floor sweepings. So after we would sort seed all day back then, you'd sweep up what was ever on the floor and you'd bag it and that would be your discount seed. And so oftentimes the poor farmers who couldn't afford to buy the best of the best, that's what they got. So it would have all kinds of stuff in it. And then through cross-pollination, you would never know what you would get the next year's crop and the next year's crop. So number one, it's for sure not GMO. Number two, the genetics are unproven. So then you, you effectively have hybrid vigor in an alfalfa. And he says, I'd be interested in coming and looking at that and maybe working with you, which of course, red flag, red flag, red flag, seed companies, Monsanto, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks, pal. Yeah. They're, they're either going to like grab the genetics or they're going to spray it so nobody else can have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, the colors of flowers on the on the alfalfa plant. You could have a sprig of alfalfa plant, and it will have whites, pinks, reds, light purple, dark purple, and then on another plant you'll have a purple and a yellow and a white. I mean, it is literally um, like nothing you've ever seen. And so I've actually shared some of that hay with some friends of mine who wanted to do the same kind of experiment like what you were doing. And last year was so dry and so hot in the spring, I think it probably burned off all of their seedlings. But um, on a couple of different bare spots here on my property, I have pretty good stands of young alfalfa. And so, once we kind of got the land healed back and we had sold some hay off and I mean, we were selling hay to the horsey people in like Aspen, Vale, Woody Creek, you know, the super high end for $12 a bale for little square bales delivered to them stacked in their barn. They thought um, they were getting a hell of a deal too, didn't they? Oh, they were. And they, their horses wouldn't eat anything else. Once they, you know, they would say, hey, can we get some more of that? Hey, we, we found another couple of tons, you know, and it looks really nice, but the horses won't eat it. And so um, I thought, why am I exporting all of these nutrients when I can utilize them on this place, you know? And so I spent an entire year 
researching breeds and breed associations and marketability and, and all of that, you know, looking at what sells for what at our local sale barns, looking at seed stock sales, all of those things. And so after a year of digging and searching and talking to some local cattle ranchers, um, we settled on registered Black Angus cattle. And so we started with a few cows and we had a, we wrote a five-year plan. We sat down and wrote, um, okay, so this is the numbers we're going to be for this. This is the equipment we need to invest in. This is the infrastructure we need to install and we'll fund it with my paying job. Um, <clears throat> and 18 months into our five-year five plan, we shut the coal mine down and sealed the portals. So my Obviously wife- Obviously not I, your choice. Oh uh, yeah, obvious, I mean, and I was, you know, at, by that time I was a shift superintendent um, and me and my crews built the forms to, to pump the, the grout to seal the portals. Like we were the last underground coal miners on the property. And um, so my wife and I sat down and we were like, she said, if you really want to do this, if you want to do this full time, now is the time to do it. You know, because if you go back to work in a coal mine, because there was one more coal mine still operating here in the North Fork, um, you won't have, you won't be vested. You won't be completely in it. So we ended up going to the bank. <clears throat> well, we went to, to FSA first and we had, we had, we were too good with our money. We had too much in retirement. We had too much in savings. We couldn't qualify for any of their programs. You know, we're, we're responsible, so we can't have any federally subsidized loans. Sounds um, about right. And which was disheartening to me. And that was my first interaction with FSA and the USD. And I thought, wow, okay. This, so is, what we, this is what, like around 2010 or so? This is going to be, no, this is going to be later. Because I think we I farmed the ground and just healed it for about eight years. And so, yeah, I guess that's probably, well, it's probably 2015, 2015. 14. Yeah, because we've had cattle for seven years now. So that was probably 2015. <clears throat> I was going to say, because FSA over the last probably decade and, and NRCS have just gotten progressively more onerous to deal with. They just, they want more things, more specific things. And there's, they, they just try to bottleneck you into more stuff. I stay out of there. I don't go in that office anymore. <laughs> And so we, we, we went to a conventional bank and talked to them and their terms were just, I was like, this doesn't, this doesn't work. I mean, and of course the, the president of the bank is a neighbor of ours and, and uh, he has cattle and, and I was just like, I don't, I don't understand. This doesn't work. You know, our paycheck is once a year. Right. And so, well, and I just, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like a good fit and I don't know about you know getting a loan for registered cattle and on just on and on and on and on. Well in the meantime, one of my good friends and, and neighbors and mentors called me and says, hey, I, I hear you're wanting to get in, call one of the ag lenders. They understand the business, their rates are going to be better, much more flexible. 
I was like, well, which one do you recommend? So he gave me a number. I called them. They're like, when do you want to meet? And I said, I'm available tomorrow. I'm unemployed. <laughs> and um, they sat down. We set up the terms, took out a loan, um, sourced cattle. And I'll tell you what, advice to someone who takes a loan out to buy cattle. Every cow, the decision on that cow, you should make it like your life depends on it. Because it does. Because <clears throat> it absolutely does. And um, I was so excited. There's two or three cows that I bought. The price was right, but the functionality of the cow wasn't there. And you could kind of see the beginnings of it. One of them had a little foot problem. Um, the other one, you know, if you go back to the, the Bonsma, you know, what cow should look like. And... Um, it, she just wasn't quite right. There you go. <laughs> for for those that are just uh, listening to the audio, I'm showing a video, showing a picture of my background, one of my nice fat cows standing out in a snowstorm. And so <clears throat> I tied into some that I probably shouldn't have. They still made three good calves, and I actually have some some mothers that are daughters of theirs. But <clears throat> and then I bought a bunch of bred heifers and that actually worked out really well up until the point where the last three hadn't been bred the way that they had promised that they were so i got some experience pulling some calves that were way bigger than they should have been out of first calf heifers um and so that evolved into, okay, we, we, we barely made the note the first year. It was a little easier the second year. The third year, we had a pretty good drought, 2018. And we're looking at having to buy hay. We're looking at having to sell cows to buy hay to try and make your note. Um, we had sold bulls, you know, some registered bulls, and that had been really well, but the input costs in that, because you have to buy feed to essentially finish them. No one will, no one will bid on skinny bulls. Honestly, they don't, they don't care how you fed them. <clears throat> they just want them to look good, and they want their feet to last for at least the first year um, to get out and breed cows. And so... And we're, we're still doing that. The genetics portion of it keeps you relevant in the breed, but it also gives me an opportunity to use my own bulls um, kind of built for our program to raise grass-fed beef. And so that kind of got us down like, well, what can we do with some of these cold cows? Everybody eats burger. I could take them to the sale barn and sell them for six, seven, hundred, eight hundred dollars or I could sell them for $3 a pound processed ground beef and double my money, you know? And um, so, so that's, so that's kind of started us down on, on that deal. And then the reviews were fantastic. They're like, can we get some more of that? When we cook ground beef, there's actually meat in the pan. You don't, you know, you don't cook hamburgers and you look back and see there's a little hockey puck left. You know, Alan agrees. Right. Or just water. 
because they're grinding it with with ice you know they're taking you know two day old three day old cuts that the shine has gone off of them in the in the case grinding them with ice to pink them back up and fill and it's just water an imported lean trim yeah well that yeah that's a whole different kind of worms <laughs> yeah and so we started looking more into that and so i think i think we're last year we butchered 25 beeves um i helped a new uh, helped a new butcher reopen a butcher shop in paonia he actually comes to the farm we kill here eviscerate skin split bleed out so there's no stress hormones you can tell it in the meat uh has a big refrigerated truck takes them and we dry age them in the cooler there and then he cuts them up um we're still working on fine-tuning the butchering end of it as far as cuts and some new cuts and popular cuts and all of that stuff um and then of course since i got tied in with the beef initiative and texas slim and all of those guys we've gotten a lot more exposure over to the front range and there's lots and lots of um health conscious and also um financial risk conscious people who are wanting to get some food security in their lives and um, so we've been connecting with them i've been over there three or twice i'm going to go over there again next week for a beef delivery so that's fun and interesting and, and meeting those people um i mean we have i think we have 12 bull calves or yearling bulls that we're marketing we're actually fertility testing them this afternoon um four of them will sell at our our uh, consignment bull sale that happens in second Saturday in March at Delta Sales Yard every year. So that's the, the genetics are fantastic. The stability is there. Um, their sire is seven years old. He's one of my herd sires. We've collected him and sold semen all over Western United States on him. And um, he's one of those bulls you have to starve down to keep him light enough to get out and breed cows at time because he's such an easy keeper. Um, and his docility is amazing. I mean, I've got selfies of me hanging on his head um, and he just takes it like a, like a 2000 pound dog. I have one that'll follow me around like a puppy looking for cake. Might not have been the smartest thing to do uh when he was younger to you know train him to come up to me and eat cake out of my hand uh, but he is he is gentle uh talking about my bull he's been he's home raised let's see he's uh three and a half years old now he's only been off this ranch for about less than 60 days of his whole life i he never he doesn't get good feed like he gets to go hang out in the pasture and he gets a protein tub and that's about it. <laughs> well, and that bull that I was talking about that mountain program 445, I sold a third interest uh, of him to a big seed stock producer in Montana. So he goes up there and breeds cows in the fall for their fall calving herd and comes back here and he walks the mountains on our um, privately owned mountain lease in the summer. So he gets, he gets a workout and that's the thing is i mean 
he's heavy bone and super stout and he gets around and but he's also smart and so if you turn him out with let's say a yearling bull he'll let that yearling bull chase the cow around till she'll finally stand and then he'll sprint over there push the yearling bull out of the way and and mount that cow so he's like you do all the work pup and uh when she finally stops then i'll come and take care of business because we dna test almost all of our registered cattle and um out of the 30 cows that he was with, he bred 25 of the 30. Um, so yeah, he's still has it going on for an old man. Good bull. Sounds like a great bull. Matter of fact. Yeah, I, I've enjoyed him. You know, I'm on Twitter and where I was chatting back and forth with, uh, um, untapped growth and they have a, a angus herd back there in the grasslands somewhere about out east and we were talking about sending some semen out there for them to try if they wanted because it's one of those things is all of the exposure he's had is here in the west and he's and he's totally adapted for high altitudes because that's one thing in, in angus cattle is brisket disease you know it's uh it's essentially um congestive heart failure it starts with uh pulmonary artery pressure problems and then they get congestive heart failure they start um, um retaining fluid which is visible in their brisket that's why they call it brisket disease and then they fill with fluid the heart gets works harder and harder and harder until they usually have a heart attack and die and so we actually pulmonary artery pressure test Dr. Tim Holt from CSU comes out. They put a giant trocar needle in their juggler vein, run a catheter through their juggler vein, through their heart, into their pulmonary artery, and it's hooked up to an oscilloscope. And uh, they give a, a systolic, diastolic, and then an overall um, measurement in inches of mercury. And that number dictates how valuable that bull is at the bull sale. Because most of our high altitude guys that are running up to 10, 12, 13,000 feet want a 40 pap or lower. Okay. And, um, and so that's, and that's all printed in our catalog. So you can be a very discerning customer if you're buying bulls at our, our bull sale or buying them from me, private treaty, because all of their pap data, as well as all of their expected progeny differences, EPDs are all there because they're all linked to a re registration number um, my wife being a registered nurse when she heard what we were doing i invited her out and dr uh holt let her stick a few and do the pap testing and uh she said wow human skin's a lot easier to stick than bovine hide <laughs> and and the and the heifers are actually a lot harder to do than the bulls because the heifer skin is, it's not thicker, but it's more resilient. And so, whereas the steer skin is thicker, but it's rigid. And uh, it was interesting to watch her do it. And then of course, Dr. Holt explaining the why for and how, cause he's done tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of head of cattle, you know, trying to trace down what genetics work and what genetics don't. And, what the uh, probability and all of that stuff is. It's, it's interesting. And 
you know, you're talking about the the pap score. And I'll admit, I was I was kind of doing a little bit of Facebook stalking and Twitter stalking on you the last couple of days. And I saw that, saw that, like, hmm, what's that? And just scrolled right on past. I'm glad you explained it. That's not something that uh, that's ever in my vocabulary out here on the plains because my high altitude is just slightly over 2,000 feet. So I don't really need to have mountain adapted cattle that have, you know, and, and it sounds like the PAP score is more measuring uh, the stability of the circulatory system and how the circulatory and respiratory system can cope with with high with high mountains and thin air and the heart having to work really hard to keep the blood moving is is that do that's I have to right? that's exactly right yep that's exactly right but what we're finding now <clears throat> is it's happening at low elevations um, like in the feedlots in Texas and Nebraska. And that's a lot of times due to breeding when you're, when you're breeding an animal to be able to finish it in 14 to 16 months and what toll that takes on their body. um, They're finding brisket disease in the feedlots at low elevations. And so what um, Dr. Holt's been doing is he's been going to feedlots and doing 5,000 head in a feedlot to get an idea of, where the cattle came from, what genetics are being used, um, and also like what their exposure is. Because that's one thing that we found is if you have something that gets pneumonia as a calf or something that gets a respiratory infection as a calf, that scarring in the lungs diminishes their ability to uptake oxygen. And that can be a contributing factor as well. Like our home ranch here is at 7,000 feet. And then the, the highest point of the lease property that we go to is 9,600 feet. Um, so we don't go that high, but just as an experiment, I kept a couple of my best performing bull calves that PAP tested high. One of them was a 46 and one of them was a 52. So essentially unmarketable for high elevation. <clears throat> and I, I ran those yearling bulls and their calves are probably the stoutest calves that I have this calf crop. And I think that's because they're just higher performing overall. And that's probably why that PAP number was higher is they're just operating at a higher level of performance. I think of it like a a, a NFL linebacker versus a college cross-country runner. Uh, If you pap tested each of them to see where they were, I bet that the NFL linebacker would be higher just because he has more mass. Um, You know, his heart's working harder to pump blood through all of his veins, you know, keeping all of that um, muscle oxygenated versus someone who's, you know, thinner. um, And I can see it in the cattle because those super low pap bulls oftentimes just don't quite get to the same point as some of those higher papping bulls. But it hasn't been detrimental. I haven't had any death loss from brisket disease. Um, But that's also because almost all of our cows are pap tested. And so we're using, you know, proven data back on proven data. Um, but 
it, it, it's an interesting game. And, and of course, like, like anything that's dependent on written data and testing, there's always outliers and that can be so frustrating. Like when you DNA test cattle and you, and you get the, the uh, EPDs back from the American Angus Association, sometimes it's completely skewed. Like it's went from one end of the spectrum all the way to the other end of the spectrum just because of a DNA test. So had you not DNA'd them, they'd have been very marketable for calving yeast. But since you pap or you DNA tested them, they found that there's more markers of DNA from a different sire or a different dam, which then changes the numbers. So you go from one to the other. Um, luckily with the beef, the beef market, they don't care what the numbers were once you pull the hide off of them. Right. CAB doesn't know if that what color the hide was when it went into the packing plant. <laughs> exactly. So what else do you do besides cows? <laughs> well, I do some custom farming. Um, I also do some pasture management consulting. Um, I tell everyone my wife works in town to support my cow habit, which is pretty accurate. Um, and so for me, <clears throat> um, I'm a full-time cattle rancher and then I just help a lot of people out. So, I mean, I do side welding jobs for people. Um, I turn wrenches a little bit. I mean, my background, of course, military mechanic and electrician. And then when I was in the coal mine, I was a mechanic electrician uh, before I went into management. And so I have lots of experience on turning wrenches and diagnosing problems and stuff like that. Um, and then the, the beef market is like two full time jobs in and of itself. It's a marketing job and then it's a it's a coordinating butchering and delivery job. And so, I mean, return on investment is really good on that, but I oftentimes don't put enough, well, I put all the energy that I can into it, but there's just not enough hours in the day. Um, a couple of the properties that we lease for summer pasture are irrigated, sub-irrigated, and then some dry land. And so we're doing intensive rotational grazing on those, not nearly as intensive as what you do, um, but we set out a pasture map and we do a written plan at the beginning of the season, you know, whether it's going to be a one-day move or a two-day move or a three-day move. And we never have cattle in a paddock for more than three days, just because some of that grass is trying to regrow. Um, but last year, our growing season was so good. Some of those paddocks got away from the cows. And so we actually ended up haying two of the paddocks um, for two reasons. Number one, tall grass with seed heads is hell for pink eye. Number two, the landowner needed the hay to feed his horses. 
And so we, we did it on a shares deal that I put up the hay for half the hay. And um, so that was good for him and good for me. And it was actually really good for the ground because some of the grass uh, is reed canary grass and it is such an aggressive grower um, that we were able to mow it down and then give those shorter, more desirable grasses and legumes a little time to compete. And by then it had started to dry down some so that reed canary needs so much water. And it also gave me an opportunity to get my swathers stuck. Um, luckily the neighbors had a big enough tractor to uh, come and pull the swather out. And it was really ironic. They actually moved here from Nebraska and she brought her 185 horse tractor to pull me out. And she said, this is the smallest tractor in our fleet. Um, this, <laughs> is the, this is the baby tractor. And I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but then that's an interesting thing. You know, I've, I've done, I don't know how many farm tours on that particular property. And I wish I had taken a lot more photographs before I started. <clears throat> because it had been conventionally farmed and then, or, or, you know, conventional cattle and no, no subdivision fences. So all the desirable grass was mowed to the dirt and it was really having a hard time. And there were patches where the reed canary grass was 14 feet tall Ooh. because it hadn't had any animal impact on it at all. And actually they had, fenced the cattle out of it because at one time they'd had an old cow get in there and get bogged down and die because the skeleton is still there. And which is exactly what that reed canary grass wanted. I mean, it, it's, that's the perfect environment for it. And so I went in there with my replacement heifers the first year. They're a lot lighter more agile and they're not heavy bred down like the cows would have been right and we went to that i think that little triangle section where the reed canary grass was was like seven acres total and i subdivided it into five or six pieces six pieces and I kept those heifers in there in each one of those paddocks until they had that reed canary grass either stomped down or mowed as close to the dirt as I could get it, knowing the growth habit of it. And I had 14 heifers in that seven acres for, I think it was 45 days total. Because by the time I would come back to that, that reed canary grass would already be 18 inches tall. Time to, time to mow it again. Right. And so that, I mean, that pretty much proved up like the, the, the capacity of that kind of grass. But it also exposed what we needed to do as far as some trenching and culverts and stuff to try and manage it a little bit better. And then the field immediately above that 
started to do better because we could drain some of that water off of it because the bottom edge of the field above it was just super swampy because it was holding all of that moisture in all of that grass. Um, and the heifers did great. I mean, they didn't have calves at side, so they didn't have huge energy requirements. Um, and it got opportunity for me to train them really well to single strand electric fence. Um, and when you're moving them, you know, every one, two, three days, four days, whatever it was, um, they know when you show up, it's time to go to a new place. So there is no gathering. I mean, granted, it was only seven acres, so there wouldn't have been any gathering anyways, but that, that kind of um, really turned me on to, if you put in the work, just how much bigger return there is. And so the next year we went and, and I took over the whole place. I think there's 86 acres in, in the part that I manage. And um, it's divided into 20 paddocks, some hard fence, some electric fence. And then I have to pump or siphon water out of the canal through polytubing down to stock tanks to get water to all of them. So that's kind of a pain in the butt, but, um, and it's one of those things where I, I'm trying to work with a landowner to show him the value of installing some stock water infrastructure. Um, well, we probably won't get, get it done this year, but I'm installing stock water infrastructure on my place. So I'll be able to show him the benefits of it, you know, cause oftentimes you just have to see it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you, uh, don't you have some honeybees too? Oh yeah. Yeah. I do have honeybees. So, you know, being one of those guys who's always trying to find the source of the seed, um, you start digging in a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper. And you see on the news, you know, our pollinators are struggling, our pollinators are struggling, our pollinators are struggling. And it's like, well, how hard can that be? And so I saw a sign along the side of the road, um, local honey for sale. And there's all of these multicolored bee boxes all over the yard of this place. So I pull in there and meet these people. And um, I was like, I've, I've always thought about honeybees, but I've never really, I, I don't know what it entails. And so uh, Robin and Dave were their names and they just took a deep dive and they're like, here, put a suit on, let's go get in the hive. We'll show you exactly what it's all about. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, so I did. And we're doing a hive inspection. We're finding the queen all of this stuff, I'm like, okay, I want to do it. Well, if you ever have bees for sale, I'm interested in buying bees. When it wasn't a week later, like, yeah, we're going to do a split and it'll be ready in a couple of weeks. This is what it costs. I'm like, okay, deal. So I bought this beehive of bees, brought it to our place here. And it's, it's like an addiction. It's like cows. Oh, I have, I have a cow. I need two cows. I need five cows. I need 130 cows because it's just like having an entire herd of cattle in a little box. 
I mean, you have you have a hierarchy, just like you have the boss cow, you know, um, that's the queen. And then you have drones. So she lays eggs and the nurse bees decide whether it's going to be another worker bee, whether it's going to be a drone or whether it's going to be a replacement queen. So depending on what they feed that egg or that larvae, once the egg hatches, decides whether it's going to be a drone, a male bee, another worker bee, or it's going to be a replacement for the queen. And um, then me as a beekeeper, I can artificially make that happen. Um, I can take another box, put it next to it, find the queen, cage the queen, put some new brood and some eggs and some young brood and some worker bees in another box, close it all up and put the queen back in the original hive, the worker bees in the new split are like, oh my gosh, we don't have a queen. There's no queen pheromones. Let's raise another queen, you know, and you can do that over and over and over again. I mean, and there's, there's just so much to it as far as when you need to feed bees, how much honey you need to leave on for the bees. Um, always paying attention to the colors and types of pollen that they're bringing in. You know, and so then you have honey that's marketable, you have beeswax that's marketable, you have custom pollination, because there's a lot of organic orchards around that pay pollinators to bring bees in, um, and trapping pollen and selling pollen. And um, the other thing too is you're helping your forages by providing additional pollinators. And so it's like this, this completely symbiotic relationship with your bees that are helping the plants, which are helping the soil and also helping your cows and helping you. Because if you eat honey that's um, raised on your own place, you have all of the, the uh, medical benefits of whether it is the micro nutrients that they're getting, uh, you know, pollens and, and stuff as far as allergies. I mean, there's just so many benefits to eating your own honey or even for the people that I market honey to, you know, eating local honey that's unadulterated because so oftentimes commercial beekeepers heat their honey because it's way easier to handle when it's, when it's warm. When it, you're doing all your bottling while it's cold, it takes a lot longer because it moves pretty slow. Um, but that kills so many of the beneficial bacteria because honey, of course, is nectar and right. little bits of pollen and bee spit, you know, because they, they suck it in to their honey stomach and then they spit it back out, give it to another worker. That worker sucks it in and then carries it through the hive and deposits it in the honeycomb. So the actual forager is not the one who puts it in. It's another worker, another house bee, you know, before it gets put in. And, um, you know, I've seen, I've seen numbers as many as 20,000 trips to make a teaspoon of honey. I, think, I think that's that true. I've seen a graphic where it's like representation of a, of like the, the shape and size of a bee and it's just like a black outline and just a tiny, tiny little bit of the abdomen is, is shaded in yellow. And that represents how much honey that that bee can make 
over its lifetime. Like I love hunting. I don't have bees and we try to get our honey from, Oh, a couple different places. There is a guy here in the County that, that has bees and sells honey. Uh, there's an Amish community store pretty close that sells honey. You know, like they usually have two or three different, uh, I guess, brands for lack of a better term. They've got kind of like the Amish house brand and a couple different local brands. Anyway, the point is what I'm saying. I love local honey because you never know what it's going to taste like. There's always a slightly different bouquet of botanicals and botanical notes in every bottle. And there's a big difference between, you know, summer honey and winter honey and the richness and just the richness of it. And since we've started eating a lot of local honey, um, we kind of ran out. And one of my things to do first thing in the morning is I like to have a couple big teaspoonfuls of honey first thing in the morning, you know, with before even have coffee. And that's kind of helps, you know, light the fire and get me going. Store-bought honey. It doesn't matter what brand you buy, what what the bottle is, it all tastes the same. That's not possible. Either, either they're taking thousands of gallons of honey, putting it in a vat and mixing it up and then bottling it so it's a consistent product or they're adulterating it somehow. And that's all I'm going to say because I don't want to get sued. <laughs> well, I, I will say that you can test honey because anytime that you want to get in a program, you know, because they have USDA B insurance, right? Um, of course they do, because we have to have bees for the USDA insured almond farmers out in California. Right. And so they will test your honey for free for you to be able to prove that it's pure honey, because, you know, when, when there are feeders inside every box of a commercial beekeepers hives there's a pretty good chance that the reason that that store-bought honey is as much sucrose or fructose as it is honey because there is a break in time that you have to stop feeding in the spring when they're actually putting honey on to ensure that there's no funny honey that that's what we call it is funny honey because it's it's feed it's not actually nectar right they're taking sugar out of the feeder sugar water out of the feeder and they're putting it and storing it um and that's the same thing in the fall is you have to pull all of your honey supers off before you start feeding again in the fall to make sure that they're not storing sugar you know white sugar mixed with water um in your honey crop. And that's the thing that I've noticed exactly what you're saying is so oftentimes um, store-bought honey is just, it's just the same flavor. It's just that. So it's not that they would be adding things like high fructose corn syrup to the honey, then bottling it. It's that they're feeding the bees that high fructose corn syrup and sugar water and the bees never have to leave the hive to make honey. That could, that could be the reason exactly right. And, and if you look at, let's say you go to Whole Foods and they have a big sign that says organic honey and you take the bottle off of it and you turn it around and you look at it and it says product of Brazil. Yeah. 
<laughs> put it right back on the shelf and go next to it where it says clover honey and you take it off of there and it's like product of whatever apiaries salt lake city utah you know what i mean okay i'm gonna buy that but that's that that um advertising draws their attention so few consumers actually like read the fine print and sometimes that fine print says oh this crop was picked in argentina and packaged in thailand and now it's being sold in southern california yeah so that's pretty green yeah it's this yeah it's pretty terrible uh, there was something I think I brought this up a couple episodes ago. I saw that there was a, a, a is Brazil or Argentina? Like they had bought this massive blueberry shipment from Southeast Asia, shipped it to South America, labeled as organic, and then shipped it up here to sell it. And they got caught. They got caught selling. At, I don't want to say GMOs, but they got caught, you know, totally misrepresenting a product as organic that, wasn't and it that happens it happens you know like we're talking about it happens with honey it happens with blueberries we talked about it earlier and we're sure it happens with beef i mean we take these old cold cows throw them in a grinder um i don't buy i don't buy that we're importing only lean trim that doesn't make any sense but that's that's probably another conversation for another time um what other animals do you have running around on the farm besides your bees and your cows? Well, we have a couple of cuny cuny sows that I just got done breeding to a um, Duroc boar. And so we're working on that IPP cross, um, the Idaho pastured pig cross. The cuny cunies are like miniature cows. Like I had them out in the yard most of the summer because my cow dogs do a pretty good job of keeping them corralled, but they're grazers. I mean, they don't hardly root unless you make the ground muddy or it's super loose soil. Whereas like that Duroc boar, when I got, when I borrowed him to breed these sows, um, I turned him in the garden first and let him rototill the entire garden. And then I took him to a new um, paddock, or it was a, it's a dry lot. And I let him turn all of that compost. And then I put him with the sows to breed sows because um, those pigs do a fantastic job rototilling. I mean, they really do. And they, they, are, they go at it like a man on a mission. You got me thinking about this giant garden that uh, we want to put in this year and thinking about how much diesel or time it's going to take to get that ground chewed up. Man, do I know anybody with any pigs could bring him out here for a couple of days? Well, and that was, that was just it. So I think it took him, I think it took him seven days to completely turn over the entire garden spot. And then I took and put like four bucket loads of, manure and bedding out of the dry lot and dumped it in on top of him and then he rooted all through that to pick any seeds and mixed it in as well so i mean it's almost a prepared seed bed by now hopefully you grow some good vegetables in it this year 
Yeah. Well, if we have enough water, that's, that's the problem is last year we had 23 days of irrigation water. So the few vegetable plants and I kept the raspberries alive. I was having to use domestic water to water them. Okay. Okay. Put that in context and perspective. You got 23 days of water total out of your irrigation canal. Now, from what I understand, like if there's water, they like you're told you can have water today, but you can't just say, well, I don't want it today. I want to save that for two weeks later. You can't do that, right? Like it's either use it or it's gone. Right. And in in the um, irrigation company that's here on Fruitland Mesa, once we turn the ditch on, it's on until the reservoir goes dry. So that is correct. But some of the other properties that I lease, it is reservoir water that you can call on and it's a three-day turn or a four-day turn. So you either have it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or you have it Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And it's a total volume of water. So let's say that you own- Yeah, yeah. explain that to me. How does that work? So let's say you own 100 um, acre feet of water. So you own 100 acres of water one foot deep. And you use a measuring device, either a partial flume or a submerged orifice, or in some cases, a, a digital flow meter to measure your water. And so, okay, you're like, okay, if I order half a foot, half, half an acre foot, um, I can run 36 gates of gated pipe. Let's just say it's totally hypothetical, right? So three what's, sections what's, what's of- a, What's a gate? In this country, <laughs> uh, I, I don't irrigate anything. I pump just a little bit of water for cows with solar wells. Like, I, well, they have they have PVC pipe that has little rectangle rectangle holes cut in it okay. that you run water into, and then has a, a plastic sliding gate on it. And so, if you've ever seen like row crop irrigation that uses furrows. Okay, so we're talking about we're talking about a big pipe kind of across the, the field, and you you move these slides to adjust how much water comes out. But then there's a valve up at the at the inlet to control how much water you're taking for from your allotment. Exactly right, and and in most cases, it's a concrete structure that has a, like a sliding metal gate that slides out into the flow of the ditch or slides back in to shut you off. Or if you're in a completely piped system, it's just like that. You'd have a big um, canal gate, you know, sliding gate or butterfly gate that you would, you know, turn down or turn up. And then you're watching a meter, the flow on a, on a either a sweeping analog meter or a number digital meter. Um, and so you order, you know, a foot a day for your four day turn. And then that's all you get until you call for more water. So here on Fruitland Mesa, 2018, and then 2020 and 2021 are three of the driest years in the history since the Mesa was settled, which was 1890s. Okay. And so um, in 2018, we had 32 days of irrigation water, and that was only because we had saved that water the previous year. Like we were watering into September 
and it was starting to freeze every night and we're just wasting the water. So we're like, let's shut the, the canal off. We'll save that water. Well, the 32 days that we had was just what was left over from the year before because we got no runoff at all whatsoever. So how many days would be ideal? Um, 90 days would make most of us really happy. Okay. Wow. So basically the last three years, you've been dealing with less than a third of what would be ideal. Correct. And then as, as it prolongs, your soil moisture gets less and less and less, and your plants get more and more stressed. So they're going to need more water to recover. And so, of course, what we do is all of our cows go somewhere else as soon as we are done branding. So generally by the middle of April, everything's calved out. We brand and the pairs go to another property that has a, a better irrigation outlook. And then we've left a bunch of standing forage behind up there. Um, so I order two tractor trailers and they come and I take the cows across the road to the neighbor's loadout facility and we sort cows and calves, put them on tractor trailers and haul them up to the mountains and kick them out up there. Okay. Other than the two properties that are down low, which are like our showcase intensive rotational grazing properties. And um, so my fall calving cows and some steers and some replacement heifers will go on those properties this for this summer. Okay. Tell, tell me a little bit about your mountain lease. I'm kind of, I'm curious to know, to understand how these mountain leases and grazing pools work. Um, so we have three landowners that we work with on our mountain leases. One of them is an absentee multimillionaire landowner that bought the property as a hunting property. And it has millions of dollars of NRCS installed stock water infrastructure. And the last two winters, we've been putting in center pivot irrigation on it as well. And So the way that works is it's cross-fenced, paid for by the NRCS as far as the um, forage program. And so we utilize all of that cross-fencing. And then I subdivide it with single-strand poly as well, just to get better utilization. And so the, that, the lease on that is I take care of the fence and I do the irrigating exchange for the grass. Okay. And so on that property, the total property is 1,630 acres, which just got put back on the market again. So we'll see how that goes. The realtor actually called me to see what the terms of our lease was and if I would be interested in taking care of it under a new landowner if it ended up selling. So I told them the terms of the lease, and if that was the terms of the lease, I would be interested in doing it again. Because then again, you know, they built a, um, it has a huge lodge on it. It's like a 11 bedroom, 12 bathroom. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's beautiful. 
And then he built a big shop garage that has a full wild game meat processing facility with um, walk-in cooler and walk-in freezer on it as well. And um, that could be a handy thing to have. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we just finished a, I think it's 90 acre wiper pivot on it this fall. And so it is actually going to be irrigating over some of the original homestead hay meadows. So productivity should be really good on it for grass. Um, <clears throat> but the property below that is owned by uh, one of the Koch brothers. It was part of their Bear Ranch um, thing that they were doing. It's been for sale for a long time. It has a big BLM pasture lease. That's part of it as well. Um, and I've been talking to the guy that has at least about possibly subletting it. It actually has the uh, one of the original um, businessmen in Hotchkiss built a big cut stone castle on it. And so that stone house is on it beautiful but i mean it's it hasn't had any updates you know since 1900 when it was built but um i'm making a note to go google a picture of that like stone castle <laughs> yeah so it's the, the the ranch name is called 7x so if you if you google 7x hotchkiss colorado it'll come up and you can look at it um it, it's pretty cool. It's got a, a matching carriage house on that property. It's got tall black um, wrought iron fence around the whole thing. Um, and then the property below that is one of the widows. I leased her husband's cows and then all of their property. And so there's an irrigated 40 and then there's 320 acres, which is where she lives. And then there's a thousand acres of really rough mountain ground that I lease from her also. So I can literally start at the bottom property, graze, and then move to this intermediate property, this, which is the 7X, and then open a gate and go to the next property, which is the Carlson place, graze through it, and then go to the upper Smith place, all contiguous. And the thousand acres is all wide open. Um, it starts in the oak brush in the creek bottom, which is a super steep, big boulder bottomed, pretty well roaring, great um, fly fishing creek. And then it goes oak brush, and then it goes up into some big aspen meadows and aspen basins uh, on the top back corners of it. One of the corners um, on the Forest Service side is called Hell's Hole because it's some rough, big, blow down trees. Um, I've been trying to figure out a way to get back in there and deal with some of the blow down trees because it's like a giant pixie sticks of 30 inch diameter aspen trees. And they're probably and so a lot taller than the trees I have here. Yeah, they're, you know, 130 feet or something probably. But um, so you're, I mean, you're, I'm up there once a week 
walking the fence line with fencing tools and a chainsaw because the trees, I mean, they haven't been managed ever. And um, when the tree's on the fence, that means the cows are out. Yep. And then they're adjacent to uh, 70,000 acres of forest land. So when they're out, they're out. (laughs) They're probably a little difficult to go track them down. Luckily, most of them don't stray far from the fence, which I have found is interesting. I think it's because they know the side that they came from. So they don't just trail off because they very easily could. Um, I've had a few trail off. And then when the the, um, permittee, that's my neighbor, gathers, he ends up just taking them to his corrals and I go over and pick them up there. But um, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I had the forest, the forest um, ranger call me one time and say, Hey, I think you've got cows out. We just rode the dry, uh, dry Creek fence. And there's some, there's some fence trees on the fence and some cows out. That's the only time I've ever been contacted by anyone on that side that there were cows out because all the rest of the way around is private land and they'll, they'll be the first one to call you when you got cows out. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I can imagine the government might be a little bit slow to call, but the neighbors, if you got cows out on the neighbor, uh, that's usually the quickest way to find out about it is they'll call you. (laughs) So where all do you market your beef? Um, almost all word of mouth. I mean, I'll, I, I have put an, uh, like a little blurb up on Facebook and um, really that's about it. There are a couple of small restaurants that buy meat from us, mostly ground beef, and they'll do like a, a Rick Ranch's lasagna night special or something like that. Um, but for the most part, word of mouth and generally when people are searching and find me their approach to the whole process is way different than me reaching out to them and trying to sell them something and really those are the customers that i am interested in you know and of course i have a a a 100 percent um, satisfaction guarantee, um, thing. And I, and believe it or not, I've only ever had two complaints that I actually had to have action on. And for me, it's like, I want suggestions. I'm all about constructive criticism. And if there's anything that you could see me doing better or differently, or even just your personal preference, please reach out to me because this is an ever evolving system and an ever evolving process. And we want our product to meet the demands of the consumer. And, and and I love doing farm tours and I love doing, I love communicating about what we do and why we do it. Um, The other thing too, is, I mean, there's, there's health stories of my customers, like, the one lady who had been vegan for 12 years was in a car wreck, had a major brain injury. Um, and then through physical therapy, never could 
get over the hump of healing. And um, she was telling me this and, and I was like, well, do you realize animal protein is the building blocks of brain, right? Eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and she was like, well, I just don't really know if my system could even handle it. And I'm like, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a package of fillets there. It's like the, the smallest cut and the finest texture. And even if you just thaw it out, cut half of it, cook half of it, cut it really small, just to, just to get yourself kind of going and um, just, just try it. I'm telling you, you need animal protein. That, that's what your hookup is or your hangup is in, in this process. And so she, she did, she ate it about two weeks later. She called me practically in tears of like, um, you wouldn't believe about the physical therapy session that we just had. And I'm like, I bet I will, <laughs> you know? And, um, and so she's been buying a quarter of a beef for me. So she went from no meat at all whatsoever, no hand products, all the way to eating a, a quarter of a beef. Um, That's a lot of cow. That is a lot of cow. And, and, but she's also really big into sharing it with her friends, you know, especially the people that were vegan and are like, Hey, I think you need this to be healthy. Try a package of steaks or whatever. And, and so that that's been it's stories like that that make you get out of bed in the morning. And the last couple of years we've been hearing so many of those stories about vegans that have been vegan for years and they think they're getting along okay. And then something happens. Like uh whether it's a whether it's a super whether it's a high level athlete, MMA fighter, or just somebody getting in a car accident and trapping to heal up from that. The body doesn't heal on a vegan diet. Like, okay. Most people cannot thrive on a vegan diet. I'm not saying there aren't some outliers out there. Cause we agree. Like, you know, it, if you want something that's 95%, it has to be very, very specific, but you can make almost a, an 80 to 90% generalization. And that's, that's pretty much applicable to everybody. Kind of gets back to that Pareto principle thing. But then we hear these stories of vegans and vegetarians that can't heal their body for months and months at a time. And then they eat a steak or they eat a cheeseburger and all of a sudden they feel better and their body starts to heal and their body starts to work again. I think those are some of the best people to reach is because a lot of them have a misguided idea about what guys like you and I do like they might have seen a couple of things in the news or in the media about the absolute worst side of animal agriculture like let's just say a chicken house or you know a a, a 10,000 or a 100,000 head feedlot that's right next to a slaughter plant you know they see that that's what they see and they don't want to be a part of that they say well animal agriculture is evil I don't want any part of that so I'm just going to go vegan well, you know, that has its problems too. In order to eat, you know, that vegan or vegetarian diet, we're talking about, you know, not having cows anymore. We're talking about 
vast areas of monoculture, agriculture, and industrial processing to make all this food. And that is better for the environment than cows that are genetically designed to eat grass, to basically take the worst crap that grows in the pasture and upgrade it as a protein source to something that's human edible. Now, another great point is every, almost every animal is edible. There's very few that you can't eat, but very, very few plants are edible all the time. Like there's some plants that you can eat during a narrow window, like, you know, fruits or vegetables or, or things like that. But a lot of those things are toxic until they're ready to be eaten because they don't want to be eaten until the right time. A grass plant always wants to be eaten. It's always putting out pheromones and chemicals to attract something to come eat it. And we as managers, we have to manage that signal and only let our, our grazing animals just take the right amount of grass before we let it rest and, and regrow. Yeah, you know, and, and I don't know how you feel about Yellowstone, but when Kevin Costner is telling that, you know, anti-animal uh, protein gal, you know, how cute does the animal have to be before you care, you know, to kill it, to make your food, when you kill every snake, mouse, vole, bacteria, you know. Rabbit, deer. Rabbit, right, to, to plow it up, to plant your quinoa or whatever, and I mean, you know, good on Taylor Sheridan for coming up with that line, because really that's the truth. That is the, that is the honest to goodness fact of monoculture agriculture. I, I don't watch Yellowstone. Like my TV is on maybe two hours a week, three tops. And I'm usually not paying attention even when it, <laughs> even when it's on, but I saw that quote. I saw, I saw that meme going around fake going around social media as like, yes, yes. Finally, we've got something on the television that's entertainment that people are watching because they want to entertain and they're giving out, you know, that, that good little nugget of knowledge. That being said, I don't know what else they're saying on the show that I wouldn't agree with, or I might want to write to the producers and say, Hey, that's not how we do cows. That's not how cows should be done. That's beside the point. It's it's getting that into the public conversation. It's getting that, you know, people eat vegan because, oh, cows are cute and I don't want cows to suffer. I don't want any animal to suffer. Well, you're not thinking about the millions of insects that inhabit that farm field. You're not thinking about the birds that ate them. You're not thinking about the thing that ate the bird or the thing that eats the thing that eats, eats the bird. Like it's all a beautiful, complex, interconnected web of life it's not even a chain i mean it is an interconnected web and as we've gone through the years of intensive crop and chemical farming it's like we're going through with a pair of scissors and we're cutting pieces out of this web and it's starting to get unstable and is there there's a point where the web collapses and i hope i hope we can stop cutting legs off of that web before that happens yeah, and that's a, a, an interesting side note about that chemical agriculture. So one of the widows that I lease her husband's remaining cows and then their all of their properties, he died from cancer and they had a conventional orchard. And of course, he grew up in the 
the idea that if it was a plant that you didn't like, you sprayed it. Post-World War II, rise of, rise of chemical fertility, rise of pesticides. And he, he tells stories when he was a kid, when his father and grandfather were using a horse-drawn spray rig to spray their fruit, how they just had to um, budget a new team of horses every year, because by wintertime, those horses would die. And so should have been a warning sign. Absolutely. And so it was one of those things that they were happy when they got their first spray tractor because they didn't have to worry about horses dying, but they still weren't wearing protective equipment themselves spraying. And it wasn't even until. Um, well, because the science said it was safe, right? That's right. And that's the thing. I mean, you, you read those emails that ended up getting released from Monsanto when they were talking about Roundup and all of that stuff and just how ruthless, I mean, they were, they were talking about, yeah, we have this, you know, group of farmers who were standing against us at first and we're, we're pretty sure that we could coax them into being spokespeople for using this technology you know, and, and even though we know what, you know, the potentials are for negative health effects and on and on and on and on. And you're just like, oh, my goodness, you knew that you were going to hurt people and kill people. But that was OK, because it was just part of business. I mean, that's that's scary to me. We're just numbers. We're just numbers. Yeah. So that makes it really easy for me to take people on tours of our farm and ranch. And, and I show, I show them all of our scars just as well, you know, as long as our in successes and everything for, um, this is why we do what we do. This little section could be better if we chose to use chemicals, if we chose to plow it up and reseed it. But what we're doing is we're feeding on it. We're feeding mature hay to try and get germination without having to break the soil. Because here I have places where there's massive sandstone shelf on the surface. Like there is no soil. Right. And so I started feeding on top of those essentially as soon as we started um, having our own cattle and then even bedding them in corn stalks out on top of that to build soil on top of that bare rock. Um, and it's amazing what that has done, you know, in the last seven years that we've had animals on this property. Um, and then now we're working on doing permanent major subdivision fence to be the backbone of our intensive rotational grazing on this property as well. You know, here on Fruitland Mesa, it's a huge north-facing plateau with very limited water resources. And so it was easy when we had those good water years, and then it got very, very hard. And the first thing that I realized is we just had to destock. Um, we couldn't let the cows wander this. And so we essentially dry-lotted the few cows that we had left that we hadn't sold and fed them in a dry lot because I knew if we just let them graze the whole place right down to the dirt, that it may never recover. Um, and that was really hard to do because we were so focused on this 
rotational grazing and giving all the animals space and all of that stuff. But that was the sacrifice that we had to make to preserve the integrity of the plants and the soil. Um, and so then we had built the herd back up until this last year and we were short on hay again and so ended up selling half the cows so we were up to 130 mother cows and we sold 60 mother cows to be able to afford to buy enough hay to feed through this year um and if we don't get more snow and more irrigation water we'll have to essentially figure something out different for next year I was going to ask because you know we're closing in on the end of February as we record this, and I what is it? I'm not real sure when it'll come out. Week or two, maybe three. Um, so, how are you looking for irrigation water this year? How does the snowpack look? And like, I guess what I'm really getting at is how soon do you need to make that stock de that destock decision? based on what you feel your available irrigation water is going to look like? So spring is a time of hope in every segment of ag. And oftentimes that's some of your strongest um, markets as far as pears or bread heifers. Um, and so typically it'll be before we haul, pay to haul those cows to the mountains, we'll have to make that decision on um, how many cows we keep. And, and the pasture is cheap feed for us for the most part, because your per head payment is pretty low. And so it's easy to, to think, well, we'll just, keep them through the cheap feed and then when we come off in the fall we'll sell them then well that's that's the glut that's when all of your cold cows everybody with nasty dispositions all of that stuff are all hitting the market so unless you have a market to sell 10,000 pounds of ground beef you're better off to get a better price for them in the spring and maybe buy a few um, calves to fill that capacity and then just sell the pounds versus holding on to the cows and and then giving them away in the fall right i if, if you're in a drought situation and you're waiting until fall or late summer when everybody else has realized that there's no water and they don't have any grass and you're trying to haul those critters to the barn uh, you're going to, you're going to, it's going to hurt. <laughs> it's going to be painful. Right. And that's what we did last year is we, we, we sorted before we hauled to the mountain. So we knew what cows were going. You had some that were nasty disposition. You had some that had little calves or they, they calved late. So you knew there was a good chance they were going to calve late again. Um, couple that had some foot problems and whatever, if there was any reason for them to go, they went. And there were some cattlemen that were really happy because they had bought new permits and they didn't have enough capacity to fill the numbers. So they're gonna end up paying for it anyways. And this was an opportunity for them to put cows that had either calved in their window 
or they do all their work on horseback and you can deal with nasty cows when you rope the cow and tie her to a tree or let your horse hold her while you tag the calf or whatever that happens to be. Um, so we were able to get a better price. And then of course, there's a couple of those cows that were getting on in years that we knew we would just grind for burger. So we went ahead and carried them through and, um, and then butchered them in the fall. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I just glanced at the clock. We're, uh, we're getting close to being out of time here. Have I forgot to ask anything? Um, I don't think so. Uh, but I, I mean, I haven't heard your story in the few of your, uh, five, six, seven of your podcasts that I've listened to. Uh, how long do we want this episode to be? <laughs> <laughs> It's going to get told, Jason. I promise you it'll get, uh, the whole story will get told eventually. Um, bits and pieces of it have come out. The short end of it is I pretty much grew up out on the ranch. Dad took over in, in 1985 was his first year operating it. And when he took it over, it was just basically the land base, set of corrals, um, and three big pastures. That was about it. Uh, he went to ranching for profit in 1986 because he didn't know what he was doing, or maybe it was 88. I get it confused. Um, he's And he's been two other times. At the ranch now, uh, it's still basically three different grazing units, um, and that's just because geography. I've got six miles of paved road and two miles of county dirt road running, running through the middle of the ranch. Other than that, Everything's in a block. Everything's continuous. So that's kind of nice. But because of the blacktop roads and the high, a relatively high amount of truck traffic, say 100 to 250 trucks a day, go through the intersection that's right there, kind of in the middle of the ranch, just upstream, you know, just up the hill from dad's house. So there's a fair amount of truck traffic, which makes moving across the highway or moving across the blacktop a little bit problematic. So I just don't do it. So the place is managed basically in, in three big units. So I usually have three herds on the ranch that, uh, that are all under slightly different types of management. The, uh, the parts of the ranch that are set up for strip grazing, it's a total of about 13 and a half percent of the, of the total land area of the, of the ranch is set up for strip grazing. And it's all on the south end. So the south end is what I'd call more of the top of the ridge. So slopes from three to five percent. I mean, it's not a mesa. It's just the top of a ridge slopes from three to five. And then that breaks over to a five to 15 percent slope to go down to some fairly shallow draws and canyons. The north end of the ranch. Um, all the water off the ranch basically flows north. So elevation goes down but i've got places on the north end of the ranch that aren't much lower than places on the south end but then the canyons where the creeks are you know that that's some of my lowest stuff i'll have 140 foot of elevation change in less than a quarter of a mile coming from a creek bottom back up to that ridge top back down to the creek bottom back up to the ridge top so um and closer up to the north end, you know, we see a lot of inclines like you guys see out there in Colorado, 30, 35 degrees. I mean, stuff that you damn near can't walk up, much less run a string of poly wire up and down it. So fencing is a challenge. A lot of times I'll 
fence off a canyon and make them stay in the canyon, or I'll keep them out of the canyon to build up a store of fuel so we can burn it out later. Um, I came back, I got out of the Navy in 2006. Um, I was an East Coast guy. So Norfolk, Virginia, like eight years, you think 29 Palms is bad. Like go spend a couple of years in Norfolk and you'll have a whole new appreciation for Southern California and the Mojave Desert. Um, so yeah, about eight, eight, eight and a half years in the Navy. Um, kind of similar to you, did, I did mechanics. I was a main propulsion and machinery mechanic. Um, after steering gear, aircraft elevators, anchor windlass, um, that that's a lot of the stuff I worked on my first ship, which is an aircraft carrier. And then I crossed over to gas systems, turbine technician, mechanical, and I went to work on our destroyer in the engine room. So a lot of the same stuff, you know, pumps, pipes, valves, uh, winches, windlasses, air compressors, fuel pumps, lube oil pumps, uh, and of course, gas turbine engines, which, uh, which was really cool. But the big differences was, is, you know, a lot of those skills crossed over between jobs. It was just, you know, the main heat source was different. That was a little different to learn. But a lot of those skills, you know, still served me, you know, just knowing how to use tools, knowing how to understand a complex engineering system. Like I can still trace out in my head a lot of systems on the destroyer that I had to know and, you know, like you have to know them and map them out, you know, and way a lot of people do is you walk the hand, you walk down the pipe hand over hand, like, okay, here's a valve. And you, you know, you draw the valve in and then you keep going. And once you have it all mapped out on your paper, then you can kind of start to look at it and understand it. Like, okay, the pump's here and where it's going is here, but then there's all these pipes and valves. So how do these open and close to make fluid go where I need it to go? When I look at pasture map on my computer, it's kind of almost the same thing. I got a bunch of different blocks and I got a group of cows and I know where the gates are. It's like, how do I move these around to get them to all the flow where I need them to flow to get back to where I need them to be when I need them to be there. So I don't have to bring them from, you know, two miles away, the far corner of the ranch across seven paddocks, just because it's time for preg check. So I try to have things scheduled to where things are close within range, where I can just pull them through two or three paddocks or they're right there by the corrals when I need to bring them in to do work. Then when you get into that thing, like, okay, we're using the same parts of ground, the same types, <laughs> using the same piece of ground to do the same thing <laughs> at the same time of year, years and years in a row. And it takes some challenge. It takes some planning to avoid that. So. Well, and what I've done is I've got a trailer load of panels because most of these properties, they tore down or burned down the corral. And so I, I mean, I've got panel corrals all over the county. Um, just specifically for that because inevitably something's going to happen and i'm by myself doing all of that you know most of the time me and my three-legged cow dog you know and um and so that's one of those things where sometimes i'll leave a set of corrals set up um and sometimes i'll break it all back down and stack it on the trailer and me and the dog will go you know wherever to the next place um, so how many acres is your home place then? Um, between the acres that I own, deeded acres, and that what I leased from the family partnership, it's just under 7,000 acres. Holy smokes. <laughs> but it, it's a different paradigm. Um, 
and different forage, different carrying capacity. It seems like a lot. And there's days where it seems like I'm on the go every day, one corner to the other, back and forth. Oh, time to go to the shop. Forgot this tool. Oh, well, need this part. Got to go to town. It's, it can be a pain, but then again, it's awful nice because I can go set out and watch my cows and not even see a road. Well, that's the thing for me is like, it's 45 minutes drive from the home place up to the lowest mountain pasture. And then it's unloading an ATV, you know, and driving for 20 or 30 minutes at times to even find where the cows are because they're wide open in a thousand acres. Right. And it is rough, steep, and there's not roads all over it, you know. Um, I actually bought two tractor trailer loads of CRP grass, Kansas grass. Um, interesting forage to look at, to dig through and see what the different kinds of grasses and stuff that's there. I was surprised at how much prickly pear cactus got bailed up in some of them. You know, prickly pear cactus is surprisingly good cow feed if you get the spines burned off of it. Yeah, that's what those friends in Texas say. <clears throat> They're out there with a weed burner burning the needles off and the cows just go to town. <clears throat> We've gotten rid of a lot of our prickly pear because you know, since dad took over the ranch, it's been burned multiple times. Most recently, I mean, I haven't lit it on fire yet, but last time the the ranch was on fire it was six years ago. We had a wildfire come through, burnt the whole thing. Like in three hours, it was across the whole ranch. Um, well, you're in Colorado. You can, you know what wildfires are. 95% of the wood on the ranch was gone. And that includes all my wood in the fence. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> <clears throat> you want to talk about a long summer, putting a lot of H braces in, rebuilding a lot of gates. Um uh, I had to put it, had to take out every, every foot of electric fence wire, which was 26 miles, all got replaced summer of 16. We did, uh, we did 140 H braces and in a weekend uh, with a couple of different crews of kids. And you should have seen it. It was cool. I had, I had like five welding trucks in the yard. I had a guy whose whole job was in the skid steer, just moving material back and forth to keep welders busy. I had three guys running cutting torches. Mm -hmm. you know, had guys welding up corner braces. And as, a lot of times, as soon as they were done, before the welds were even cool, they were hitting a trailer to go out to the pasture to get planted in the dirt. I had a uh, shout out to my good friend, Travis Ponick, who interned with us summer of 09. He came back down in 16 to help us rebuild fence. I mean, Man, that was handy. I just gave him a crew of people. And I was like, go, <laughs> just go make stuff happen. Uh, they were at work and he calls me. He called me to check in. He's like, yep, we did everything at four corners in 17 minutes. I'm like, what? So they went up top of a hill, pulled out the remains of four H braces and set four new ones in concrete to spec, like the exact right space for the gates in 17 minutes and went on to the next one. I, the, if I start naming names, I'll forget most of them. They're on a sheet that, you know, all, all the people that came and helped me rebuild fence in the aftermath of 2016 couldn't have, couldn't have got it done. It was truly a team effort. And I'll say this since then, 
like there were big fires in 17, big fires in 18, and there were big fires just, you know, three months ago up in northern Kansas. Uh, the response it, it's I guess it's another way to reach some of these urban people these urban dwellers that don't exactly know our story you know that's been that fire event was leveraged I suppose and I guess that saying in Hollywood you know any publicity is good publicity there's no such thing as bad pub publicity there's just publicity when that fire came through, there was a lot of people the first few days that were just super upset. Like, oh, burned up all the grass, grass will never come back. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hold my beer. Just wait two weeks. We'll get a rain. It'll come back. This is not a problem. Oh, well, I, you know, had a bunch of cows burn up. Okay. Sorry, that sucks. Oh, my fences are all burn up. Well, I guess it was probably time to rebuild some of them anyway. And at the end of the day, the message I started really, really trying to push was, Guys, we needed this fire because all the invasive brush, all the invasive trees that have built up over the last you know 50 years, we've been planting the damn things. We let these cedar trees get out of control. And now, you know, it's sometimes it's cost of thousands of dollars an acre to go in and clear them out. Well, you make a wildfire, wildfire does that real cheap. And then you just have to go deal with the carcasses. So that's that's another that man we could do a whole podcast about how how to clean up wildfire damage and what to do with uh with tree carcasses well and that's the thing with the beetle kill here because all of our a lot of our pinion trees are now afflicted with the with the beetles and um you listen to a school of thought biologists talk about how to mitigate it and i'm like i understand that that's what the textbook says but what i'm telling you is we've set ourselves up by putting the fires out for the last 120 years. I mean, and it's not going to get any better. And I think more and more people, not just guys like us that are out there every day and see it every day, but like the professional federal land managers, they're starting to see it and they're starting to understand and push back against federal policy and say, guys, we need to change this. And you know, I, Kansas is 96 or 97% privately owned. So there's like, there's a little corner of federal grasslands over in the Southwest corner of the state. And then the federal government kind of owns Fort Riley. And that's about it. Like the state doesn't even, isn't really that much of a majority land landowner here. So I don't have a lot of, of, of perspective on BLM and forest service um managers and things like that so it's it's always great to talk to folks like you jason and get some of that perspective and hear what it's like living with them as a neighbor side by side yeah and it's actually i mean it's it's a great deal as far as subsidized feed you know i mean they're they're paying you know not very much money for really high quality forage that's what i've found you know neighboring the forest with this private land is the the nutrient density of that high elevation feed is it is significant i mean the calves that came off of that ground this last year with it being so dry and so hot because number one they got shade because they've got big mature trees and then you've got short but super nutrient dense grass 
and it's big enough that they can travel. They, you could see them. And, and then I, I steer them with salt. That's how I move them around is I'm going to salt here and they're all, they can smell it from miles away. And then they're going to come to salt. And, um, and you see how much better the ground looks, the places where you've let cattle forage. Because that one absentee landowner didn't want me to graze any of the upper end of that property and the grass and the new um, gambel oak, scrub oak is so thick that I think I've got him convinced to let me graze it this year, just simply for an access standpoint, because you can't even walk through it. It's so thick because it hasn't had cows on it for a couple of years. So. Well, good deal. We got to get out of here. I got to, I got to go do some actual work for the day. All right. Where do you, uh, where can we find you on the internet? Well, we have uh, Rick Ranch's Facebook page, and then I have Jason Rick Facebook page, and we're on Twitter, Beef Bees and Bitcoin, and uh, Instagram, Jason Rick. Um, we have a fairly Spartan free Google business website. I'm actually getting more and more traffic on that. Um, just post a few pictures and stuff like that. And um, then of course, now we're, we're entrenched with uh, Texas Slim and the Beef Initiative. So that's been going really well and fun and exciting. We're talking about having to get together here in the North Fork in July, it sounds like. Um, I actually have a meeting with a couple of local organizations next week to see if they'd be interested in being part of that as well. So we're gonna iron out some details and should have some more information on that for sure after Kerrville, because I'm going to go down to Texas and see what that first uh, beef initiative get together looks like and help me direct traffic for what's going to happen up here. For sure. I'd, I've been looking for an excuse to come to Crawford in the summer for about two years now. So well, that would be a pretty easy one. We'll try to make it work this year. Oh. Awesome. Is there anything I forgot to ask you? I don't know. I'm sure there is, but I'm sure we'll have time to talk again soon. I I think I wrote down about three podcasts worth of rabbit trails we can go chase later. Definitely. All right. Well, Jason, I sure appreciate your time and thanks for joining me today. Yep. Thank you so much for what you're doing. I, I love what you're doing, putting yourself out there and helping get this communication out to some people that really need to hear it. Well, thanks for that. We're going to try to keep doing the best that we can to keep content coming out every week. Sounds great. Thank you. All right, gang. Have a great week. Have you too.